Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. China's reopening has catalyzed a strong market rally, with the Hang Seng Index gaining over 40% in just three months. And investors were asking us quite a lot of questions. For example, why the sudden policy pivot? Are the accommodative policies going to continue? Are the structural challenges all gone now? Today in this podcast, we're going to discuss the Chinese economy and the Chinese market. This is Richard Tang, the China strategist and head of research in Hong Kong for Julius Baer. It's a great pleasure today to have invited Hong Hao, partner and chief economist of Bro Investment Group, to share his views on China in this podcast. Welcome, Hao. Thank you very much for joining us today. Happy Chinese New Year to you too. Thank you very much. As we all know, investors are most focused on reopening right now, and this is also what has driven the rally so far. I guess we should start the conversation with the reopening. How I know you've been traveling a bit between Shanghai and Hong Kong, given that Gro's headquarters in Shanghai. So tell us a bit about what you and your colleagues saw on the ground in Shanghai and in China. How much have the businesses resumed normal? Is the traffic jam all back? And how crowded is the airport? Anything that you think may be interesting to share with us? Yeah, I was actually there in December during the first two weeks of reopening. The reopening speed was sort of catching everybody by surprise. China basically reopened in one go, right? So instead of stepping through phases, it just switch on the bottom and that's it. <laughs> so I was there in the first two weeks of the reopening and it was chaotic. So obviously people around me were fairly sick, but then most of them quickly recovered. And some of my colleagues actually lasted a bit longer. So me being physically on the ground and then because I have three shots of vaccination and I didn't actually get it, I was able to travel safely through the reopening pandemic. So that was that. But now, you know, uh, two months later, what we're seeing and hearing is that according to the CDC, a number 80 to 90% of the Chinese population has been infected. And therefore, we may have already achieved crowd immunity. So this is substantially faster than most people had expected. And I think that is one of the reasons why the market is quite buoyant during the Chinese New Year and after the Chinese New Year. Mm, to your best guess, why did the Chinese government turn so unexpectedly? I think a couple of things, really. In terms of timing, it's actually a good timing to be reopening because during Chinese New Year, most of the uh, commercial activity would have stopped. So if you choose this time to reopen, then it's actually have minimum impact on the Chinese economy. But then the sort of the trade-off really is that when you reopen during a cold winter season, the likelihood of people getting severely sick is increased. And also because of the Omicron is a weaker form of virus, I think the Chinese leaders sort of think that it's a good risk to take to quickly achieve a crowd immunity. And I think that's reason number one. And I think number two really is that the Chinese economy is intended after a year of lockdown and also three years of pandemic. It takes a lot right, to do daily COVID screening for the entire population. Most of the um, local government running into huge budget deficits. And also because in 2022, land sales in most of the provinces basically has stopped. Right? So property investment has plunged 40%. Right? So there's really huge decrease in investment. 
Right, so all in all, you don't have the money to go on. And also reopening at the time when the Omicron has weakened and also when the Chinese economy is sort of coming into a hold during the Chinese New Year. So it's sort of timing-wise, uh, economical sense-wise, and also the virus is, is weaker. Well, when we go through the Chinese New Year data points, one thing which is clear is that the property sector is still the weakest spot. And developers are actually a major beneficiaries in this round of loosening. And we all know about the four arrows, which is the relaxation of loan financing, bond financing, equity financing, as well as the help to the developers to repay their overseas debt. But how effective do you think those measures are, How, And what do you think the end game for the property developers will be? I think most people were very excited to you know, see policy stimulus for developers and also, you know, because of a very difficult 2022, you know, many of developers on the brink of bankruptcy, really. So it's, it's nice to see some policy support. But having said that, though, after a horrific year, it would take some time to recover. So I think now when the equity market sees a policy stimulus coming through, the rally is mostly sentiment-driven. The, the recovery we're seeing is mostly in the bond price and also in the stock price. But then in terms of the physical real estate market, it's not moving just yet. But also, you know, because of the Chinese New Year is a low season for house buying as well. So it remains to be seen. I think once it moves into March, right, so the weather gets warm, people going back to work, going back to school, then whether the property sales will pick up or not. But experience has told us that, you know, because we've been through like three years of difficulty. So people tried very, very hard to save and unwilling to spend. So even though we saw some very encouraging spending pattern during the Chinese New Year, it's really because it's a special seasonal effect. So after that, then we get to see the real consumption behavior in the Chinese economy. My bet is that it takes some time to recover and therefore it will probably take some time for the buyers to come back to the property market. Actually, if we only focus on reopening, I think we may be missing the big picture because it's really about a pivot in the overall policy, not just the zero COVID. And at Julius Bear, our view is that if it's just reopening, then the rally might have all priced that in. But we think that the rally can resume after the current consolidation because the different driver of an overall accommodative policy landscape should take share prices higher further. And then the way I describe policy is basically that those shifts in policy direction just work like a pendulum. When the economy is good, policy focus generally shift to reform. And when it's bad, the policy focus will shift back to focusing on growth. So how, let me ask you, where do you think we are in the macro cycle? And when do you think we will see a more visible recovery in the economic growth in China? Yeah, well, I've done years of quantitative research into a Chinese economic cycle. So I think from the data and also from the quantitative model I run just to check how healthy or where the economic cycle is, and then we are now at the bottom of the economic cycle. But sometimes it takes a bit of time to climb out of this shortfall, and sometimes it can be very quick. It really depends on how the property responds to all this stimulus, because if we're talking about one-third up to one third of the economy that it hasn't been doing well in the last year. And people are less confident than before in terms of buying a house, right? So it remains to be seen. But I think in general, because I am sort of a school of economic cycle theory, right? So I tend to view the ups and downs in the Chinese economy through the lens of economic cycle. Given that we are now already at the bottom and we have so much policy help, 
I would say that sooner or later, the Chinese economy is going to climb out and then recover. So I guess it's just a matter of time. Talking about policies, I think one question that we got frequently from our clients is that what happens to the common prosperity and all those long-term policy goals, Chinese modernization, for example? How was your take on that? Are they coming back anytime soon? Yeah, common prosperity was first proposed in five, six years ago, in 2017, 2018. It is a stated goal for the government because, after all, if you have rapid economic development, then not everybody can benefit from it. In fact, you know, because of the wealth disparity, the majority of people is not benefiting as much from your economic development. Then the development itself becomes pointless. Right? So that's the purpose of common prosperity. And also, you know, we know that in the past, the Chinese tax system has been full of loopholes, let's just say. For example, only slightly over 80 million Chinese people pay income tax. We're talking about you know, 1.4 billion people. You, know, you only have like 80 million people paying income tax. It's just staggering. And also, according to the PBOC data, if you look at the highest income earners' median income, and you use that to divide it by the lowest income earners' median income, over the past 10 years, the gap has been increasing rapidly and much faster than economic growth. And this comparison is telling us that the Chinese population hasn't been benefiting equally from the economic development. So it is going to happen. And I think more likely than not, it's going to happen in the form of tax reform. So for example, we may introduce capital gain tax for trading stocks and then buying and selling houses. We may introduce property tax to tax people who have more than one properties ownership. And also there could be inheritance tax to tax on the intergenerational wealth transfer, stuff like that. So it is going to happen. It's a matter of time. And I think because it's a stated goal that happened like five, six years ago, now it's about time, especially now with the income disparity has been so glaring that it gets to a point that it has to be fixed. Gotcha. Well, I guess one thing that you may agree, notwithstanding the strong rally, is that the long-term outlook of China doesn't all of a sudden look totally clear. And the things that we've been worrying do not all go away. And the China-U.S. relation is definitely one of those things. On one hand, the Chinese authority has nominated a few less hawkish diplomats. That makes people a little bit more hopeful that at least China is trying to improve the relationship. Less warrior style, if you know what I mean. But on the other hand, the Biden administration seems to be cooking up a lot of plans targeting at China. Well, I don't have first-hand information, but at least the media reports are suggesting that this seems to be what's happening so far. So how, how do you see all of these? And what's the outlook of trade tension, of geopolitics and all that? Well, I think the rivalry between China and the U.S. is on. I mean, the direction is very, very clear. Right? So there's no turning back. And ever since 2018, the trade war began. And ever since, the rivalry becomes more intensified. So I would say that it's a uncertainty that many investors should keep in mind. And also because the direction is set, and therefore, even though the level of intensity is hard to predict, that we know that it's going to be there. Right? So we should take this uncertainty as given. And I think you know, given the lower valuation now, I would say that part of this geopolitical uncertainty has been factored into the risk premium. Right, so otherwise, it wouldn't be this cheap. <laughs> so I would say that it has been factoring, but for people who are investing in this market, you know, they should just keep this in mind and also take it as a given. The other thing that drew people's attention is definitely the demographics in China because the population fell for the first time in 60 years. 
a lot of investors were asking us what that means for consumption or what an aging population means for healthcare expenditure. How does this cause any concern to you? I think it's concerning on one hand, but then on the other hand, because population and demographic problems is a secular long-term problem, just cannot be fixed. China has entered in 2022, you know, the population has entered into a negative growth phase for the first time in history, right? So it predated the forecast by about 10 years, right? Shocking. When this happens, it's very difficult to reverse. But then at the same time, I would remind our listeners that most of the Asian countries have a similar pattern. So I think the South Korea is much worse than, than China, Singapore, Taiwan, more or less have the same birth ratio per million people. It's, it's about 1.1, 1.2, right? So it's very, very low. It's way beyond the point where you can replace your population with newborn babies. Right? So when that happened, it's very difficult to reverse. Back in 2016, China actually relaxed the one-child policy. So you know, give people freedom to have two kids. And last year, you give uh, freedom for people to have three kids. Right? So for example, the province of Sichuan, you know, which is the hometown of the giant panda, so they come up one step even further. So now, if you have a baby, you don't need a marriage certificate to register a hukou, right? So that's a huge breakthrough, you know, because back then, marriage is sort of sacred, feel that the law doesn't want to meddle with, but now you don't actually need uh, the marriage certificate to get a hukou for your kids. And hukou is very important. It's like a provincial passport for Chinese, basically, right? So you actually move around and work in China, right? So it's a big deal. So I wouldn't be surprised to see like many other provinces will come up with sort of other means to stimulate population growth. But having said that, in 2016, when China relaxed the one-child policy, birth rate bumped up for one year and then plunged, right? So it's very difficult to change it. But having said that, you know, because we're facing an aging population, it has implications for a Chinese pension, which is in my view, underfunded, uh, but then at the same time, you know, because the population is aging, then savings consumption habits would change as well. For example, you know, as people age, they tend to spend more and they demand more healthcare service, nursing homes, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you know, over time, we're probably going to see a change to the Chinese consumption story. For the past 20 years, ever since China entered WTO, there was a, a very well-sounded story about if each Chinese buy one cup of coffee, then you have you know, 1.4 billion cup of coffee sold. Right? So that's, a, that's a sort of the idea that carry investors through you know, the past 20 years, and that will change from now on. Probably we will change into a shrinking population, but at the same time, savings rate is going to decline, consumption is, is going to go up, and also demand from the senior population is going to increase. Cool. I think that's uh, quite well argued. So far, we've talked about the positive changes recently. We've talked about some of those long-term issues that may still stay in place. And we know investing in China is never one-sided positive or one-sided negative. And at this juncture, the A-share market has already gained almost 50%. The A-shares have much less gain, but still, that's quite decent. Just then, I already mentioned that at Julius Bear, we think that the rally will still continue. But our audience wants to hear your view. Do you think that China will continue to go up? Should we buy China at this point? Yeah, I think people worry that after 50% of rally, there could be a, a pause or even a, you know, a substantial correction you know, because we've run up so fast in, in such a short time frame. I would say that you know the trend is very clear. So we're now at the bottom of the economic cycle and the recovery tends to last more than three months, right? So the last few years. 
So I would say that, you know, as the recovery continues and also stimulus continues to roll in, you know, because in, in March, we'll have a twin session, right? So twin session sets the economic growth for this year and also the budget for this year. And also maybe there's some tax reform, we don't know, and some new policies as well. So then that way, the market would get a, a better sense of the uh, policies environment going forward. So therefore, because economic cycle tends to last longer than three months, more policies going to come through. Therefore, I would say that there should be more upside to the current rally. But having said that, after the transition, so when we're moving into the second quarter in early April and March, in terms of how this stock market cycle rose within a year, they tend to have a risk of correction during that time. So people might want to be mindful when we get close to this time window. Right. So at least that's a healthy correction. And what sectors do you like the most? At the moment, we, we still like internet platforms, growth companies, healthcare, biotech, discretionary consumption, and also industrial companies. All right. So most of these sectors are more predisposed to a recovery. Therefore, you know, they should benefit more than the other sectors. We're not saying the, the other sectors doesn't have opportunity, but we're just, just saying that these sectors tend to benefit more. So investment banking industry, diversified financials, because the Chinese stock market is going through a very important secular reform. It's called registration-based IPO. So basically, for companies who fit the standard, who, who fit the criteria, they can go public. It basically clears the hurdles for a company to raise money and expand their business. Right? So it's a very, very important reform for the Chinese market. And so in the coming years, what we are likely to see is that the volume of IPO will increase, right? Because, you know, the, the hurdle has been erased. And therefore, I would say that most of the investment banks in China, most of brokers in China should benefit from this reform as well. Okay, so we do share some similar recommendations. At Julius Berry, we like internet and consumption. And our second tier preference is high beta financials. Hal, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts today. I'm sure our audience all find them very insightful. Thank you. And to our audience, thank you very much for listening to this podcast. Goodbye for now. Wealth Insights is a podcast series where Julius Baer experts discuss topics from a wealth management perspective. Whether it's starting a business, preparing for retirement, or transferring wealth to the next generation, our experts provide answers to the relevant questions. Available now on all good platforms, Search for Wealth Insights on your favorite podcast player. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.